everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Pamela Price ran for DA in Alameda County in 2018, home of Oakland in California, but she was unsuccessful in knocking off incumbent Nancy O'Malley. Welcome to our show, Pamela. Thank you for having me. So what made you want to run for prosecutor? I am a civil rights lawyer by training, definition, life experience, and I wanted to do something to reform the criminal justice system from the inside. I was persuaded that it was a viable option and that we should try it. And what were your concerns about Alameda County in particular? There were a number of concerns. Um, Chief among them were the racial disparities. As you know, Oakland is at the heart of Alameda County, and Black people are, I believe at that time, were nine times more likely to be stopped by the police. We have a long history of police misconduct, police brutality, police abuse. arising out of the Oakland Police Department, uh, as well as our Alameda County Sheriff's Department. And we have a district attorney that turns a blind eye to that, um, to holding police accountable. So that was a big issue, police accountability, racial disparities, both in terms of the enforcement of the law, as well as the administration of justice in Alameda County. Those were the chief things, a lack of transparency, a lack of connectedness to the community, um, and a lack of representation. What in particular do you think that Nancy O'Malley didn't do that she should have done? I think Nancy O'Malley should hold police officers accountable. I think Nancy O'Malley should have um, created, I would create the kind of district attorney's office where there is a Um, a line between my agency and the officers, the the law enforcement agencies that I have to work with. Whereas in under O'Malley's administration, it's a known career path. Essentially, if you leave the police department, you can go work for the district attorney's office. So when we're talking about investigating police misconduct or Um, uh, police brutality, you have essentially ex-police officers investigating their former colleagues. Um, So those are the kinds of ethical lapses, uh, the enforcement of the death penalty, 
the way that juvenile justice was being administered, we found that African-American youth were four to five times more likely to be prosecuted as adults. Um, the sentences are harsher. Um, a variety of uh, a system that essentially is infected with racial disparities. And uh, that's not a concern for, um, has not been a concern for District Attorney O'Malley. She has continued to run the office the way the good old boys ran the office 40, 50 years ago. And it seems strange because it, it seems like every time I turn around, you see Oakland or Alameda County in the news for another police incident. There are other police concerns. Uh, recently, uh, they fired the police chief because of lack of addressing those concerns. Uh, so it seems like the DA's office should be more proactive, wouldn't you think? Yes, exactly. I mean, the DA's office traditionally has not, as I stated, held officers accountable. The um, most recent example of that is the Joshua Pollock case, Pollock case, where Mr. Pollock was shot dead um, by officers acting completely illegally and out of control. And our federal court monitor um, made that conclusion that there was uh, significant lapses of judgment and appropriate precautions for protecting human life, that Mr. Pollock was essentially murdered when he did not need to be. There was no, he did not pose a danger. Um, and yet our police chief wanted to give the officers a slap on the wrist. And our district attorney, the same day the police released their report uh, exonerating or, or justifying the officers' actions, the district attorney issued her companion report supporting that same conclusion. Um, we know that, that that conclusion was flawed. Um, and we've seen that time and time again. Um, the only prosecution that we know of in, in these times was uh, the murderer of um, Oscar Grant. And that officer was prosecuted by the DA's office, really under the leadership of the prior DA and certainly under a great deal of community pressure. As the district attorney herself, officer, um, sorry, District Attorney O'Malley has simply not found any cause to hold officers accountable, um, and certainly not the leadership in the department, which is a problem when police officers such as OPD know that there's no accountability, there won't be any, uh, you know, vigorous prosecution of misconduct. We don't, we have a city attorney's office that has failed miserably as well in terms of disciplining officers. And so we continue to live in a state, in a city where officers are, we essentially have a rogue police department and no accountability. And it seems strange. I mean, this is a, a, a city that elected Ron Dellums, who had previously served in Congress for years. It's a city that's elected Barbara Lee, these are progressive voters. What's wrong with them? Most of the voters did not even know that the district attorney was an elected official when we ran. You have to understand, Alameda County's tradition has been that the district attorney, for the last 55 years, the district attorney would resign prior to the end of his term, and then he would nominate his successor to the Board of Supervisors, the Board of Supervisors would make a selection, appoint that person, essentially. Um, and so there was no public review. 
um, of what the district attorney's office does or was doing. There was no public discussion around that. No one had ever run a, a race against Nancy O'Malley. She never had to justify prosecuting kids as adults or prosecuting, you know, the, the immense racial disparities were not discussed, were not revealed. I was the first person to run in 55 years. And so when you think about that, most of the people who live here, certainly anyone under the age of 55 <laughs> in Alameda County and really under the age of 60, because even if you were born older than 55, you might not have been voting, right? So you have decades of folks that had no clue, one, that the district attorney was an elected official, Two, that the district attorney had some obligation to report to the community what he or she was doing. And so there was just a, a complete lack of knowledge or understanding um, other than in a political context. And Nancy O'Malley is a very good politician. So she used the office to build herself up and make herself appear to be, you know, very uh, a, a good community sir, or a good civil servant. But in reality, there were so many issues that were never talked about, never discussed, never revealed. And when you look at, you're absolutely right. In Alameda County, what we found was we had all of these progressive organizations, nonprofit youth organizations advocating for youth around the country. And yet no one was really talking about how do we change Alameda County. There were, they knew the youth organizations, we're home to the National Center for Youth Law and a lot of organizations that knew, but they didn't have a platform because if you don't have a candidate, there's no need to, there's no public discussion about it. Now, I do think in fairness that if, if you look across the country up until maybe four or five years ago, um, there's not really a lot of difference there uh, for Alameda versus the rest of the country. Most DAs did not get challenged. Most DAs, if they were challenged, won easily anyway. Um, but that is starting to change, wouldn't you say? Yes. yes, definitely. Yes, you're absolutely correct. Our criminal justice system is based on people not knowing what's going on in the system and not being aware that most DAs are in fact elected officials and that they are accountable to the public. And particularly when you have a system, a criminal justice system that is based on racial injustices, it's easy for the broader society to close its eyes and say, well, that's just those people. It doesn't affect me. And so that's how we've dealt with our criminal justice system historically in this country. Now, you were part of an interesting wave of progressive prosecutor candidates. Uh, so across California, uh, even in my county, uh, there were yeah. uh, challenges to the traditional yeah. DAs by progressives. And most of those in your year lost. But that's starting to change, too. So we got uh, Chesa Bodine across the bay from you. Uh, we we have Deanna Becton, who's to the north of you. They've all been elected on on uh, these progressive platforms. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. Diane uh, Beckton was part of our cohort. She ran with us. And of the nine progressive DAs that ran in California in 2018, Diana was the only one that was successful. 
and you know she had certain attributes that allowed that gave her a heads up or a, a head start with the voters. So that was great. The rest of us were starting from scratch, educating our communities, educating the electorate about what the DA did, does, and and how the office is performing. So, you know, it looks like, you know, the movement is starting to um, take effect a little bit. You know, we're starting to see some big victories in there, um, even though in your year uh, there were a lot of lopsided defeats. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. California is the vanguard. I mean, we were fortunate to be able to have enough people to step up uh, and have all of us running in our different jurisdictions Uh, and you know you don't you start the battle (laughs) you don't always win i mean the the new um there will be another wave of people and they will benefit from the battle that we fought you know you just you don't win them all you have to start somewhere though so talk a little bit about your background uh you're in civil rights um what kinds of things have you been working on Uh, i am blessed to be living my making. I was one of the um, original plaintiffs that sued Yale University for sexual harassment in 1977 and participated in the movement to give sexual harassment a name. And so it's been my honor and privilege to represent um, women and some men who have been sexually harassed on the job, in schools, and to continue that work as a lawyer. I am a former foster kid and a juvenile delinquent, and so it's been my joy to represent kids um, in challenging situations where their civil rights have been violated. Um, I've always been an advocate for racial justice. I was arrested in a civil rights demonstration when I was 13 years old um, and paid a price for that activity. And so it's been my honor and privilege to represent victims of of racial harassment as well as sexual harassment victims of retaliation, um, any kind of discrimination, I am diametrically, intrinsically opposed to it. So I've been a social justice warrior all of my life. And to be able to do this work has been the joy of my life. It is hard work. I do sex cases. I do race cases. um, I do difficult cases. There is no easy access to justice even on the civil side. I don't do criminal um, law, but the civil justice system is just as impacted by the things that undermine justice in the criminal justice system. So how do we address things like racial disparity in sentencing? Um, I think you have to change the persons that make the decisions. You have to have a woke electorate that understands that your district attorney is making decisions about sentencing and prosecution that has tremendous ramifications throughout the community. Um, It's been wonderful to see a wave of legislation um, primarily led by Senator Holly Mitchell that has done Uh, great work in terms of getting rid of enhancements and the disparities in prosecutions that we see in California. Those changes have been mandated by the legislature, but again, in places as in Alameda County and in most 
counties where district attorneys are part of the California District Attorneys Association, they are opposed to that legislation. They won't carry it out. You know, the district attorneys have a huge impact on the judicial system. And so if a judge does not, uh, is concerned about how the district attorney is going to view him or her going forward, then they tend to uh, accept the sentencing recommendations of the district attorney far more than than they do under of anyone else. And I think a lot of people don't realize that the system itself, um, when you talk about prosecutions, from from the level of arrest all the way through the system, it is stacked against people of color, especially African Americans. And so, you know, even even you know, crimes that don't appear to have racial components to them, like, you know, in the old days, uh, possession of marijuana. Um, the, the number of people that uh, use marijuana, um, study after study shows, is pretty evenly split in terms of, you know, the same percentage of white people are u- were using it as African-Americans. And then you look at the prosecution and it's like 80 to 20. Um, and, and, and so you have this humongous racial disparity. It's true. And it's across the board. Um, one of the cases that's working its way through the system right now in Alameda County is a child abuse case where a, um, a father is being prosecuted for child abuse and um, he was convicted and he received not only a regular four-year sentence, but then an enhancement of five years so that he was um, serving a nine-year sentence. And then the court of, fortunately, the Court of Appeal overturned the sentence. But now you still have the district attorney's office um, continuing to prosecute this gentleman, his name is Dante Roberson. He's already served four years, but they want to prosecute, retry the case um, so that they can try to get the extra five-year enhancement. And studies have shown that African-Americans who are suspected or accused of child abuse are many more times more likely to be prosecuted than white families. Uh, so it is just, um, it's, it's the racial disparities are throughout the system, and yet you have um, prosecutors that are oblivious to it. For instance, in the DA campaign, we asked, the question was asked, if you as a district attorney know that a case has been brought uh, and infected with racial disparities, will you continue to prosecute my answer was no. Her answer was yes. So prosecutors make a decision. They don't care about the racial disparities. They will just prosecute. And the fact that blacks tend to be prosecuted more often, receive harsher sentences, just is something that's been accepted as part of the criminal justice system. And until you change the people making those decisions, it's not going to change. And we got a glimpse of that uh, last month when the San Francisco DA, Chesa Bodine, uh, implemented a couple of key changes, uh, one of which um, they're no longer going to charge uh, sentencing enhancements for prior prison. And, and mm-hmm. you think, well, 
you know, why is that a racial issue? Well, it turns out that, uh, that there's a huge disparity in terms of who gets prosecuted for the prior prison. And then right. uh, the other big one, of course, is gang enhancements. Um, right. Humongous mm-hmm. racial disparities there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But that's been the norm, and that's how the system has been used in some ways to undermine certainly the economic stability of the African-American community in, in this country. I mean, it's an outgrowth of slavery. It was a way to keep us from being able to advance. And, and we see the impacts in terms of the, the wealth gap between blacks and whites. A lot of that is impacted by the racial disparities in the criminal justice system. One very common issue that comes up when you have black people that are being prosecuted, arrested, prosecuted at higher rates, it has a ripple effect across the entire community because you're not just taking one person and throwing that person into jail. You are impacting the entire family or community. That person may not have the financial resources, the whole family has to become involved in getting posting bail for one thing. That's why bail reform in California would have been and across the country is so significant because why black people are paying and posting bail at significantly higher rates because we're the ones who are trapped in the criminal justice system. So that has an economic impact. Overall, how do we address issues like mass incarceration? First, we acknowledge it. Um, You have many prosecutors, including our own uh, district attorney, that says that mass incarceration is not real. It's just something that, it's just a term that we made up. Um, You know, they they read the book and they said, oh, well, that's, you know, that's one person's view. But in fact, it is the reality for not only communities of color, but for the whole country. We have an incarceration problem. California is, is at the lead of that. We have to stop building prisons, stop over-incarcerating people, stop using gang enhancements and, and um, additional you know, sentencing enhancements. We've got to shut all that down. We've got to have a different view about how we manage our justice system. And it can't just be people get arrested, they go to court, they're appearing before the judge who was a prosecutor, who's working with the prosecutor's office. The whole system has to be turned inside out. And that starts at the county level with every county prosecutor. Every victory that we win has an impact. It, ha- it is a movement and it has to be something that goes across the country. Do you feel like you made a difference in terms of changing the way that the current DA thinks about things? I would have to say no. I think I made a difference in inspiring people like Chase Booting to run and getting waking people up so that people knew the next person who does this, we have to support that person. And so I was so amazed and inspired by what happened in San Francisco. Alameda County is still struggling. As you noted, we just had to fire our police chief, our police commission. She would not cooperate. She would not be accountable to the people of Oakland. And I think a large part of that is because she had a very powerful alliance with 
our district attorney, with our mayor, with our police union. These were people who were standing behind her saying, no, we don't want change. And in fact, we've been under a consent decree now for 17 years. And we had a police chief that was not committed to getting us in compliance with um, the, the agreement that OPD made and the city made 17 years ago. She was not committed to that. And that has been, was demonstrated during her tenure and since her tenure where she has attacked the federal monitor and has tried to justify her failures by saying that the monitor is a problem and then calling up on Trump Justice Department to come into the city of Oakland and to take over a federal court case. That says a lot about where we are. And I don't think that that kind of mentality would have survived. We would have been subjected to that mentality for as long as we had that chief if we had not had this unholy alliance between the district attorney's office, the OPOA, the Oakland Police Officers Association, and the mayor, Libby Schaaf, to basically protect the status quo, to cover up the corruption within the Oakland Police Department, which was what led to the appointment of the new chief. But once again, we had a district attorney that was complicit and was not committed. And there's been by her re winning her reelection, there was no reason for her to change. <laughs> you know, there's no incentive. If what you have been able to do is effectively persuade people that everything is all right, don't worry about the racial disparities. Don't look at what's happening with black children. Don't look at what's happening with black people in Oakland. These things don't really matter. Then yeah, you're going to continue to have a police chief that acts in the way that she acted. And so I don't feel like Alameda County has moved forward despite the effort that we made. Now we broke uh, the hold that they have on the seat. Like I say, 55 years for the first time, people now know this is an elected office. And hopefully in the next election, we will see a progressive lawyer step up and challenge the status quo again. And is that going to be you? Time will tell. (laughs) I haven't ruled it out, but I haven't ruled it in either. (laughs) Time will tell. I want to go back to the police issue because I find it interesting. I mean, the one, I, I guess, bright spot in all of this is that you actually do have a police commission with enough power to remove a police chief. Uh, most places yes. don't have that. Yes. And that came about because our citizens were appalled at what OPD had done in 2016. We learned about the sex trafficking of a minor, one minor, but we know that it was more than one minor. But that led to, that scandal led to the passage of Measure LL. And community activists who have been, you know, very disappointed with OPD for a long time. We've known for many, many years, as long as I've been in Oakland, we have a rogue police department. Yes, black people are stopped at nine times more than whites. There is clearly a racial um, foundation for police enforcement in Oakland. And people knew that. And, you know, it's there when you have that kind of lawlessness it bleeds into virtually every area so yes we had a problem we had a problem with sex trafficking of and exploitation we've had that 
there was more than one case where women were being exploited by police officers, sexually exploited. And the citizens, the residents said, we've had enough of that. And so we voted Measure LL. It was passed by 83%, which is what created the police commission. And yes, it is a powerful commission because it is a reflection of the despair and the pain of this community of what we have suffered by this police department for decades. And I know I'm repeating myself, but I think it bears a little repeating. I mean, it just doesn't jibe with me that you have what on the whole is a very progressive area with a lot of very good, very progressive elected officials. And you can't seem to get uh, past this horrific issue of the Oakland Police Department. Well, we have a lot of, we're a progressive community. I challenge you when you say we have a lot of progressive elected officials. We have a lot of elected officials that proclaim themselves progressive. But when it comes to issues of racial justice, police accountability, we're not, they're not moving the ball forward. And it did take the community to create a police commission. And it is truly a commission created by the community. It took the community to do that. And the elected officials just tagged on and, and joined in, you know, to support. But the community created the police commission. And that is the only redress that we have right now. We have a city administration that has fought the police commission at every turn. They have not supported and been supportive of police accountability, which is why we still have a a consent decree after 17 years. Our city does not properly discipline officers. It doesn't handle those cases correctly. We've had a whole series of reports, investigative reports, showing where the police basically are not being held accountable and they're not being held to comply uh, with the provisions of the consent decree that they agreed to based on a lawsuit, a pretty big lawsuit. So we have a progressive, I guess what I would say to you is we have a very um, progressive community, a lot of progressive ideas, and we have a lot of activists. We have a elected class of officials that is very invested in the status quo. I can tell you as a member of the Alameda County Democratic Party, The Democratic Party traditionally endorses the most conservative candidates on the ballot, and it's about preserving the status quo. And when you're talking about criminal justice reform, you are talking about shaking up the status quo. And so you have to make sure you draw the line and you understand that there is a clear line to be drawn between the people who live here, who are engaged in um, political activism and progressive activism and our elected officials. Yeah, and it seems like that is true everywhere. It just seems like it's magnified for whatever reason in Alameda. True, because we are very active and we have a lot of progressives here. And we have, you know, 30% of our population is not are not registered Democrats. People are registered independents because they are frustrated with the Democratic Party leadership that claims the mantle, at least as far as elections, of being progressive. But when you look at the policies, when you look at how the law is being administered um, and followed, it's not in a progressive manner at all. 
I mean, it's how you can have the birthplace of the Black Panther Party versus OPD. It's good versus evil. And we're still fighting that battle. So what are your current plans and what are you hoping to do in the next few months, assuming the world kind of returns back to normal? Well, I want to say that I don't would expect the world to return back to normal for quite some time. I think we have to be very realistic. This is a pandemic of, you know, we haven't seen this in a hundred years. And so we don't know how this is going to play out and we need to take it very seriously and be prepared for the long haul. Um, having said that, I have was recently reelected um, to the Alameda County Democratic Party Central Committee along with a slate of very progressive, bold progressive candidates, community activists, people who have a different vision about how we repair mass incarceration, who are prepared to try to bridge the gap between the electeds who are preserving the status quo and the community which wants change, which wants to see more. Um, And so we're going to be preparing ourselves to um, come into the leadership of the Alameda County Democratic Party in January of 2021. And I'm looking forward to the new ideas and the new initiatives that we will help to lead in in collaboration with our community, with the true progressive spirit of Alameda County, and try to get that reflected in our actual elected officials. Well, Pamela, it's been great having you on our show. Um, We are out of time now. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for doing this. So important to talk about these issues and to get everyone's insights on it. And and we know that people want change, and so that's where we have to go. Thank you. Thank you. That was Pamela Price. You've been listening to Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwell. Very interesting conversation with her talking about police issues in Alameda County and her run for DEA in 2018. And we'll have to uh, stay tuned and uh, focus and watch and see if she wants to run again in 2022. Sounds like the issues that arose that led to her running have not been resolved. This has been Everyday Injustice. Join us again next time for some more discussion of criminal justice reform. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.